Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today we're talking to Tom Gearing, CEO and co-founder of Cult Wines, which is the largest wine investment fund. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. I was wondering if you'd give us a brief overview of your background and of Cult Wines. Yeah, a little bit of background about myself. I've been the CEO and running Cult Wines since university. So the company was actually founded whilst I was at university between my brother and myself. And that will sound quite strange to a lot of people because everyone will think, well, when I was at university, I was chugging beers and having fun going out. What were we doing starting a wine investment company? That sounds pretty strange. And the reason for it, the person to blame was my father. He was actually a finance professional. He was in investment banking in the UK and London. But when I grew up, he had a passion for Burgundy and a passion for wine in general, but in particular, he fell in love with Pinot Noir and Burgundy. And in my formative years, I spent a lot of time with him just driving from London down to the Côte de Nuit, staying in Nuit Saint-Georges and literally going door to door, meeting winemakers. And he set up his first wine company called Burgundy Cellar, which was an importer in the mid 90s when I was about 10, 11 years of age. Yeah, I accompanied him on trips and we had a wine cellar in the house and, you know, he was madly in love with wine. Then he started a company in the early 2000s called Financial Wines, which sort of predated LiveX and was around the same time as Wine Searcher, which was an online price transparency website. So he actually went, he left the city and he raised some venture capital funding. And essentially, he wanted to launch like an online price aggregation tool because he obviously could see the discrepancies and the inefficiencies within the market as any person can, you know. You can buy one case of wine or one bottle of wine at one price and you can find a, you know, a different retailer for 20 or 30% more. So as with a lot of markets and a lot of categories, you know, the internet's really, really fast-tracked the way that people find prices, especially around wine. Unfortunately, that business ran out of funding after the dot-com crash and unfortunately wasn't profitable and uh, had to close that business down, ended up selling a lot of their data to LiveX when they, when they closed up. And so that's a very long-winded story to how I got started in wine because – My brother and I grew up around wine from both sides. I grew up actually going into the offices at Financial Wines on an access database, putting in prices. So I understood about pricing and price appreciation and inefficiencies, but I also understood the physical, tangible, emotional, passionate side of wine, which is going to Lalibee's Loire and sitting in her living room where her two Yorkshire Terriers were barking and my dad was, you know, picking bottles from her cellar and putting them in the back of the car and, you know, playing with the Labrador that the, the Cess family had at the main Dujac. So I sort of grew up with both sides of the coin. And my brother and I, in sort of 2007, he was actually working in the city in London. It was at a time with a global financial crisis. And we talked about it. We were like, you know, people fleeing from the financial markets, you know, interest rates are rock bottom. Everyone's lost faith in the traditional financial markets. And people are looking for alternatives. People are looking for safe havens. And both of us just couldn't understand why no people outside of you know, aficionados, experts, people that knew about wine. Why weren't more people looking at wine as an asset? Because it had such a consistent long-term track record of price appreciation. And we'd seen that with my father and his collection and going to auctions and buying and selling wine. So for us, it felt so normal. And we just realized that this was something that no one was really aware of. And actually, it was a massive opportunity for us at the time that we were in, sort of 2007, 2008, post-global financial crisis, to actually go out to investors and say, hey, if you're looking for a safe haven, if you're looking somewhere to put your money, you're looking somewhere that can give you some yield, something that is fairly resilient to any sort of financial market corrections, wine is a really great place to start. But if you don't know what you're doing, we can help you access it. We can help you manage it and we can help you make this a profitable investment. 
And so that was how we got started in it. And that's sort of my background and why I was some crazy university graduate in 2009 going to the bank and getting a loan to set up an office and start a company. You're clearly British and talking about London. Do you think being in the UK and London as sort of one of the original trading hubs of wine has an advantage in terms of investing in wine or understanding the marketplace for wine investment? Yeah, I think that wine trading in the UK and in London has been around for a long time. It's fairly well established, if not very well established. And one of the advantages the UK has is this tax-free status it allows for wine trading. So, you know, one of the advantages that the UK's had over a lot of other countries, although that ha- the rules have started to change a little bit more in, in other places, especially in Europe, is that you could buy wine and have it in a tax-free warehouse where you don't pay any duties or any taxes on the wine. And even if you were a purely passionate collector that was going to one day drink the wine, it still doesn't make sense for you to pay the taxes up front. So this was a mechanism that everyone used, whether you're a collector or an investor. And actually in the UK, with you know, especially in London, with property prices and land prices being so high, a lot of people don't have the opportunity to build a wine cellar at home. And if they do, they've obviously got a huge amount of money. So most people don't have the opportunity to have 500 bottles of wine stored at home. So the wine market and the trading hub in London was established for a lot of functional reasons. But then what got born out of those functional reasons was actually a very tax efficient, very secure way of building fine wine collections and being able to profit from them. And then what really exploded was when Asia started to increase their thirst and demand for fine wine. And, you know, a lot of Asian collectors started utilizing the UK London market to actually build collections before shipping them back to Asia. And similarly, uh, people in North America, I think that one of the biggest objections or stumbling blocks for US investors is this idea around the free tier alcohol system in the US, the complex nature of shipping wines and owning wines and what's the tax status on wines if I make a profit and do I need to pay the import duties or not? And if I do have my wines in New York State, am I allowed to sell it to a collector in California? It gets to the point where most people just go, do you know what? It's not even worth the time or the effort or the risk to actually try and understand it. So it's quite complex. But actually, the UK system as a hub allows any individual from anywhere in the world to own and hold wine in that particular tax-free status. So not only did it start as a very functional, there was a very functional reason why the UK had this trading hub, but it then started to attract in people from all over the world because they could see it as a tool for them to start building collection in a much more efficient, safer, more secure way, while still maintaining the optimum conditions, temperature, quality of those wines. So I think that the UK gave us an advantage because we were very close to where all of this happens. But I think it's also been a fantastic, it's given us a fantastic foundation to go out to new markets and educate people in completely different markets and completely different territories with completely different tax laws about something they were completely unaware of and suddenly allow a lot more people to start buying and investing and collecting wine without the worries that they would normally have about importing and reselling across state borders. And so, topical question, but does Brexit have any impact on that status and what you just described? So, I mean, at the moment, the Brexit situation has mostly been impacting the operational side of things rather than the tax side of things. The operational side of it, as the rest of the world is really finding at the moment with the global supply chain issues, is really slowing things down. It's mostly down to the fact that hauliers and HGV drivers are just not willing to come to the UK. So, shipping wines back into the UK is a lot slower Thankfully, the UK is one of the biggest buyers and consumers of uh, wine from the EU. So I was always very confident that there would be a negotiation. I think I was always confident there was an agreement to be made because it wasn't really in anyone's interest to make importing wines from the EU uncompetitive 
because a lot of wineries in Europe would obviously be very, very upset. I think when you've got two parts of a negotiation table, both very willing to make a deal happen, something's going to happen. And, and thankfully, that has happened and that has transpired. But I do believe that the global supply issues and the infrastructure issues are something that we've had to deal with. And the way that we've dealt with that is actually by opening up decentralized storage facilities. So we actually have warehousing now in Paris and in Bordeaux, as well as the UK. So we've actually, we're not a retailer, right? So, you know, we're not like Total Wine in the US where you're importing it and you're delivering it to someone's house. We're acquiring wines, acquiring assets on behalf of our clients, and we're responsible for making sure that they're authentic, the wines have traveled in the correct manner, that we check them and that they're then stored in the right temperature and humidity controlled conditions. And we have to allocate them against that client. But why does it matter if that's in Paris or in Bordeaux or in London? It doesn't really make a difference. And since the EU and in particular France changed their storage laws, it has meant you can now hold wines in stasis in Europe without playing the localized VAT. So this is the same, basically the same free trade agreement, well, the free trade structure that they have in the UK. But that only happened about, I think it was around about 2016. So it's only in the last sort of four or five years that those rules have changed. But I think it's great for people like ourselves now because we can now have a much more scalable and decentralized structure, which allows us to have different hubs where we store wines on behalf of our clients. Uh, that's interesting. So getting back to basics a little bit, why do you think people should even invest in wine? Yes, yeah, so that's a great question. I think that I will answer this in, in two ways. I think there's the wine passionate people like myself you know i was excited about wine i love wine you know my disposable income what better way to utilize my disposable income than to build a fine wine collection that in one regard i might come back to in the future and have some brilliant wines to drink but on the other hand it's something that's consistent that's going to increase in value so i think to a certain extent if you love wine and have a passion for wine investing in wine is such a great way for you to build a collection you can drink in the future but also at the same time know that you're going to make a great return from that collection. I think for those that aren't wine passionate, or maybe have an interest in wine, but aren't wine passionate and enthusiastic like that, I think that wine is an incredible asset class because it has some very unique characteristics. I think the unique characteristics of wine around the demand, supply and balance, you know, wines that are made in very small quantities, they're consumable. It means that the prices are very consistent in terms of going up in, in value. And I think that wine is a safe haven. It's reliable, consistent returns. It's not like something to a sense, a bit like Bitcoin or crypto, you know, things that have been around for a few years, who knows what the future is like for those particular assets. The best wines in the world have been made for the last 250, 300 years. I mean, you're talking about Samuel Pepys and Thomas Jefferson referring to and consuming some of the investment grade wines that are around today. So there is a level of consistency and there's a level of safety in investing in an asset that has that level of longevity and history. And I think that the other great thing about wine is it's very insensitive to financial market fluctuations. We saw it with the pandemic. We saw it with the global financial crisis. I was you know, starting this business during the global financial crisis. And as all other assets depreciated significantly, wine prices stayed even. They actually went up in, up in value in 2009. So I think that diversification element for a just pure investor is actually really unique. I mean, it's actually quite difficult if you're a pure investor right now to find assets that will be a pure diversifier, something that's going to lower your risk and help inflate your returns. And I think those risk adjusted returns in that uncorrelated fashion is one of the most attractive aspects of investing in fine wine. So as an alternative asset class, how do you think wine compares to other alternative assets like art or gold or other things? 
Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question because I think my answer to this, I'm not saying redundant because I think, the, you know, these alternative assets are changing every day with fractional ownerships with, you know, what you saw probably in the press with Masterworks last week and the way that people can access these assets. But I would say, historically speaking, the big difference between investing in something like wine or investing in something like art is that there's much lower barriers to entry with investing in wine in that you can get started with an investment grade, high quality, classified growth wine for maybe $500. And you couldn't necessarily say that about high quality artwork that's actually going to make you a good return. I think the other thing to say about wine is the liquidity of the market. Now, liquidity in the context of traditional assets, of course, it's nowhere near as liquid. But actually trying to buy and sell fine wine in today's market, if you're talking about investment grade wines, is immeasurably easier than if you're investing in classic cars or artworks or other alternative assets of that nature. So I think the liquidity factor is you know, really, really important. I also think it's interesting because to invest like a billionaire, to invest in the most expensive Burgundies or the most expensive Bordeaux like Petrusse or DRC, it's expensive, but it's not completely out of the reach. You know, to be investing in Picasso artworks or paintworks or, you know, specific chassis of 1960s Ferraris, you're talking about tens of millions of dollars, whereas you can actually buy the most expensive Burgundies and the most expensive Bordeaux for thousands of dollars. And so anyone can basically have access to the same assets that, you know, Bill Gates might be able to get access to if he was to someone who, you know, consumes and collects wine. So I think those things are really different. And I also think pricing is important. Wines are traded all the time. Wines are trading on a day-to-day basis, week-to-week basis. And I think price transparency is really important when it comes to investment. And price transparency in the wine market is far greater than in other alternatives. Again, going back to that example of arts and artwork and, and cars, you know, sometimes you're talking about one particular artwork by a particular paint artist who hasn't sold for 10 or 15 years publicly. You know, how do you actually put an accurate price on that? Whereas with wine, if you're talking about a particular vintage of Mouton Rothschild or you're talking about a particular vintage of Sassicaia, I can tell you within a very accurate degree of, you know, maybe one, two, three percent, I can tell you roughly what that wine will sell for in the market. And I think that price transparency and that price accuracy is really important when it comes to growing an asset class and growing the category. And so I think that liquidity, the accessibility, and that price transparency around wine is what gives it a massive advantage over other alternatives. So maybe we could go over the high-level wine investment process. Can you walk us through the basic steps of how someone would invest in wine with cult wines? So yeah, we offer a managed portfolio service. So we work with each individual client. Our minimum investment level is $10,000. And so from $10,000 upwards, we work with a client and through a consultation process, we'll understand what's that individual's objective. So What's your risk profile? Is it sort of cautious, moderate? Are you aggressive? What returns are you looking to achieve with your wine investment? How long are you looking to invest for? Are you looking to invest for the next sort of three to five years? Or are you looking much longer term, five to 10 or 10 years plus? And how does this fit in with the basket of other investments that you have? Is this one of many other asset classes in your basket? And actually, you're looking for this to be the super 20% per year asset within, you know, to really move the needle? Or is this really sort of safe play? low risk, put your money in, forget about it, and you know, come back to it in 10 years' time. So what sort of role is this playing within your basket of investments? And based upon those parameters, we will then build a personalized, customized portfolio around your objectives. So that will be physical cases of wine that are stored on behalf of the client in a temperature-controlled, humidity-controlled warehouse that we have here in the UK or one of our warehouses in Europe. And we will then provide that client access to our investment platform 
which is a web app application where they can either access it on their phone or via desktop or tablet, whatever it might be. And there's a raft of analytics and services that they can find within that application. But the most important thing for us is that we also have an investment process in our company. So we actually employ a top-down asset management approach to fine wine investments. So we have a CIO, we have uh, portfolio managers who are all CFA-level qualified individuals, and we have an investment process that we follow to managing our portfolios. And so that really involves a constant review of where we think the market is, what's our asset allocation from a tactical and a strategic perspective, and how does each of our clients' portfolios match up against that strategic and tactical allocation. So if we go for a period of time, you know, if I think back to when the Trump administration put the tariffs on fine wine, there was a period of time where we were bearish on Bordeaux. So at that point in time, I think our AUM was around 40% in Bordeaux. So all of our client portfolios, 40% of it was in Bordeaux. And we actually, from a tactical perspective, wanted to get that down to 30%. So from that point for the next quarter, all portfolios that we created and all readjustments we did in our portfolio was actually to reduce people's exposure of Bordeaux. So our portfolio management team would then work with the relationship managers and then communicate that with the clients to say, hey, you know, you've got 45% of Bordeaux at the moment. We're kind of bearish at the moment because of these macro factors at the mo- and, you know, that we're seeing. Our advice would be let's sell out some of your Bordeaux positions and potentially allocate some of that capital to maybe Italy. Because at that point in time, Italy was actually on the rise because Italy wasn't included in the tariffs and the Airbus dispute. So we were looking at the top Italian producers like Sassacaya, like Ornolaya, like Monfortino, like Giacosa, like Mascarello. And we were thinking, hang on, these guys look undervalued generally. But now that they have this price advantage in the US, where most US importers and collectors won't be importing any new wines in, they have a potential to increase exponentially over the next sort of three to six months. So our bias, that was in January 19. And within six months of that, our AUM exposure to Bordeaux went from 40% down to like 36.5, which is actually quite impressive considering we've got such a large AUM. And our Italian exposure went from 6% to 13.7%. And in that time, Italy you know, completely outperformed the market. I think it went up by like 12.5% in that first half of the year. And Bordeaux maybe dropped by two or three percentage points. So that is really our DNA. That is really our USP as a business. It's It's a managed portfolio in wine, but it's an actively managed portfolio in wine. And I think that's really what we are most proud of and and the thing that we think we offer that no one else can compete with because that active management and that ability to be agile and that ability to be tapped into the market, that ability to understand trends as and when they're happening, but to execute on them is actually a lot harder than I've made it sound. But you know, we're obviously striving all the time to deliver, you know, superior performance for our clients. But I think that's a real key part to our managed portfolio service. And Tom, for our listeners who might not understand the acronym AUM, it's assets under management. Yes, that's correct. So the total value of wine portfolios we manage for our clients. Essentially, your total holdings and what percentage are sitting in there. Okay. So as you're investing in wine on behalf of your clients, what is the policy? Is it whole bottles, cases, fractions? Or what are you guys doing at Cult Wines? Or are you doing multiple of these things? Yeah, so all of our clients own the physical asset. So people own a case of wine or bottles of wine. So it's the physical asset rather than fractionalization or any other sort of unitization of wine. And every portfolio is distinct. And, you know, one of the reasons for me is, so we talk about AOM, our AOM is 275 million US dollars. If you look historically at every wine fund that's ever existed, no wine funds got bigger than 100 million euros. And the main reason for that is actually 
when you do a pooled investment like a wine fund that people own shares of, it's actually very difficult to get real size and scale in the wine market. Just because, first of all, the liquidity that's required at that level is so high that it probably is too much liquidity for the wine market. You know, 100 million AUM for a wine fund where everyone owns a unit of a pool of wines, you have to maintain a certain level of liquidity, which would probably be unrealistic in today's wine market. So there's a limitation to how big you can get. I think also the one size fits all approach for me isn't the right approach for wine investment. I think that there is there is a lot of differentiation between, look, Robert, you come to me and you say, this is a safe haven investment. I'm thinking about the next 20 years for my kids, for my future. I'm happy with 6 7% return. That portfolio is going to be quite highly concentrated in the classic regions, in the top producers from the best years, you know, your 05 Bordeaux, 2000 Bordeaux, 2010, great Grand Cru vineyards in Burgundy, your top prestige cuvee champagnes. You're going to stay very classic, very safe. And you're probably going to get 6 7% returns consistently over a long period of time. You know, Peter, you come to me and you say, Tom, I want to have fun with this. I want to find the next big thing. I want to find the next DRC. I want to make my 25% return. I want to make my 100% return. And, you know, that portfolio approach is completely different. We're looking at Jura. You know, we're looking at, say, the up-and-coming producers from South America. We're looking at some Californian producers that people haven't quite heard of. We're looking in Burgundy, but we're not looking at the top tier of Burgundy. We're looking at Arnaud Lachaud, for example. We're looking at Pierre de Rocher. And maybe we're not even looking at their... Brioche Chambertin, maybe we're looking at their, you know, premier crew from Jevry Chambertin because we think that looks undervalued in the market. But essentially, we're being a bit more aggressive in trying to find value within the marketplace. And we don't mind, say, losing. I think losing is the wrong word. We don't mind missing the target on some of them because actually, if out of 10 picks, four of them come in and you make a 100% return, then actually your overall average return on the whole basket is going to be pretty good. And if the other six don't quite take off in the way that we hope and they maintain value, then so be it. You haven't lost any value. So in answer to your question, we build managed portfolios for each individual client that owns their underlying assets. They own the cases, they own the bottles, but each portfolio is unique to that individual and we manage it on a unique individualized basis because we truly believe that's the best way for each client to get the objectives that they want. So you had mentioned for my investment that you would be looking at, you know, classics and great vintages. So are you buying back vintages of these wines? And if so, are you buying those direct from Chateau or Domain? Or is that something you're going into the marketplace and buying from other sources? Yeah. So last year we bought 30, I think it was 35% of the assets we acquired last year were primary. So direct from wineries, new vintages. And the other 65% would have been wines that are already in circulation, so secondary market wines. In terms of where we source the secondary market wines, it's normally a various number of different routes to market. Of course, sometimes it can be late releases from the Chateau or wineries. Oh, you know, we've got some back vintage volumes of 2005, whatever vintage it might be. We might acquire that if we think the prices look good. I would say generally, broadly speaking, wineries, when they do re-releases or back vintages, aren't necessarily the most price advantageous places you can acquire those wines from. They normally do price them up, understandably, because they've been in their chateau or their winery for the last 10 years. But in terms of secondary market, you know, we're sourcing either back from our existing investors if they're looking to exit or they're looking to liquidate certain positions. We might be sourcing from the secondary market in Europe in terms of trusted suppliers, brokers, intermediaries that we know have access to the right stock. 
or we could be sourcing from some of the trading platforms, you know, places like LiveX or, you know, other platforms that exist on the B2B side of things. So it'll probably be a mixture of one of those three or four channels to acquire the sort of secondary market back vintage wines. Yeah. I mean, I could assume if you're buying from other places that have purchased direct years ago and it's in bond in the UK or in other locations, it's, it's pretty straightforward to kind of align on provenance. But if you're buying from other secondary locations that you don't have that clear part, there's a lot that onus is on cult wines to do the validation and, and confirming the provenance. And is that a whole big section of your business then to validate that? Yeah, no, yeah, hundred percent. I mean, it's such a massive part of the wine market. And unfortunately, as us three will know, you know, the wine market is susceptible to fraudulent activity. But even if it's not fraudulent, as you said, if it's been around for 10, 20 years, you've got to know what's the provenance. Where's it been? Where's it being stored? How do you know it's been at the right temperature and humidity controlled and all that type of stuff? So sometimes it's not just about counterfeiting and protecting against that, which obviously is a problem in the wine market. It's also making sure that that wine's been stored in the correct manner. So yeah, it's a really big part of what we do. And that's one of the main reasons we have our own warehouse facilities. So our warehouse facilities, we actually lease them. We have our own staff. And that's a really important thing for us rather than going to third parties. Not that third parties aren't trustworthy and they're not got the right staff and they're not able to do it. But at the scale that we're managing at this, and at the pace that we're importing wines and getting new wines in, we need to have four to six warehousing staff every day going through all the wines that are coming into the warehouse, taking photos as they arrive in. Because you know, if there's a problem, we have to go back to the winery and arrange replacements. Like a really good example I can give you is actually some US wine that we imported from a broker who was based out of California. It was a 2013 vintage of Scarecrow. And it was a whole pallet. And at some point between it leaving the winery and arriving in our warehouse, it must have been exposed to heat and heat temperatures probably at least 25 to 30 degrees. And the reason we knew that is when it arrived and our staff unwrapped the pallet and checked the bottles and the cases, all of the corks had raised, you know, at least a centimetre or two centimetres. Some wines were actually showing signs of seepage. Now, that's normally because of fluctuations in temperature and obviously the cork contracting and obviously liquid coming out. Now, the most important thing for us to check that is not just because of the clients that we might sell it to, it's actually to protect ourselves because we have to make a claim. So we then had to make a claim back to the person we were requiring the wines back to say that this hadn't been shipped properly. And in the end, the freight forwarder ended up covering it. I and mean, we essentially got our money back and we returned the stock. But that's just one example of why it's so important for us to have that control over the assets coming in. Uh, beyond just making sure that the wines are authentic and they are what they should be. You know, there's so many things, as I said, that are important to be aware of when buying wine and investing in wine. So, and we've got our own photography studio as well. So we also built our own photography studio in our warehouse where we can process, I don't know, like probably 250 cases a day in terms of taking photos. But also we built a technology, so it's a live system. So every time a photo gets taken, it immediately gets loaded up onto our servers. So as soon as someone in our warehouse opens a case and takes a photo, it's on our server. So our operations staff that sit in our headquarters here in London, they're able in real time to see the photos that the warehouse staff are seeing. And so that means we can immediately go back to the freight transport and we can immediately say, hey, there's a problem with this stock and this is something we need to address. So yeah, you know, it's extremely important, of course. So what are the fees associated with investing in wine with cult wines and what do those fees include? Yeah, so we charge an annual management fee and we have four tiers of account. So our entry level account, which starts at 10,000 US dollars, that's charged at 2.95%. So essentially all the tiers include the same essential service, which is portfolio allocation, customization of the portfolio, obviously adjusted to the risk term, allocation of the assets into the warehouse 
access to our investment platform, account support for their portfolio, and it also includes storage and insurance for their wines to the full market value. And it also includes trading on the account. So, so when I talk about some of the active management, we're not actually charging any fees to do that. So if someone invests $10,000 and you know 12 months later, there's a wine there that we think, actually, let's sell that wine and reallocate those funds into a new wine. That process happens without any charges or any fees, because essentially our interests are aligned with the clients. And it, the more their value of their portfolio goes up, the more income that we're making, because our income is based off the value of their portfolio, the AUM that we discussed earlier. So our management fees align our interests and align our incentives with the client. So we're happy to trade the account because essentially if we're trading it effectively, we're increasing the net asset value of their portfolio and therefore we're increasing our income. So it starts at 2.95% and then the next tier up goes down to 2.75, then 2.5 and then 2.25 and there's different tiers. So in USD, our 2.75% starts at 35,000 and in USD, the Grand Cru is 150,000 US dollars with 2.5%. And then at half a million dollars, it's 2.25%. So do you get additional benefits as you, besides a lower management fee as you go up the categories? Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, I didn't, yeah, I didn't mention that. So for us, when we go up from the Premier Cru, Grand Cru and Colt Cru, it's around the experiential side of wine. So our ethos here at Colt Wines, and this is probably driven by my own <laughs> passion and love for wine, is is like, of course, it's a great investment, but I truly believe that wine is an investment that gives you more. It's an investment like no other, you know, for the reasons we discussed. And actually, we want to take people on a journey of discovery. And we're also very, very fortunate that we have access to some of the best wineries in the world, some of the best producers, some of these people we like to call friends and we see on a regular basis. And, you know, if you're an investor in these wines and you're owning some of these wines, why can't we open up the doors for you to have greater access and greater knowledge and impart that knowledge with you? If we can take someone who has a base level interest in wine, get them investing in wine, make it profitable for them. And during that journey, get them to learn about wine and learn about the producers. You're going to end up creating a wine enthusiast for life. And in my mind, that's a job well done. And I think historically, the wine investment market has been very bad at balancing the head and the heart. And when I talk about the head and the heart, I talk about the pure rational head side of making money from wine, which a lot of people may see negatively. And then there's the pure passion side of wine that forgets about that. And it's all about the wine and the passion and the terroir, which is you know understandable. But I think the wine investment industry has been notorious. And I think even ourselves, we probably fell into this trap before. Finding that balance between the two. And, and we're just so dedicated and we're striving to find that balance between both getting the enjoyment from the passion side and getting the investment returns. And so the different levels of account types gives our clients different access to events, to educational activities, to trips to vineyard visits like for example this evening in our london office we're doing a uh, tasting for ornalaya so that's a client only event so we've got the winemaker from ornalaya coming in we're hosting that for 15 people here in our offices you know we're doing events all over the world with different producers different winemakers in new york we did one with rare champagne that was just for clients only and you know obviously there's a plethora of stuff going on we had a hope by doing an event here in london last night we did an event with Angelus in Shanghai a couple of weeks ago. But these are client-only events. So if you're a client of Colt Wines and you're in one of these regions, you can come to our offices and you can meet the winemaker or you can meet the representative or the ambassador. You can drink the wines. You can hear directly from them. And that's a really important part of our service. And as you go up the different tiers, that gives you greater accessibility and greater access to those individuals. So you mentioned earlier you have 275 million US dollars in AUM. You also have over 100 employees in six offices all around the world. 
is that AUM and people distributed, how is that distributed regionally? Do you have more in the UK, obviously, but Europe, Asia, North America? Yeah, so I mean, North America, we only opened in April and we've already got eight people in North America now. So three in Canada and five in New York. So that's expanding pretty rapidly. Obviously, London is our headquarters. So in terms of our business, think of it as like almost like a hub and spoke model. Essentially, most of the infrastructure, the administration, the back office is done out of London. So operational team is based here. Logistics team is based here. Accounting and finance team are based here. The purchasing team are based uh, here, although we are thinking about potentially adding to our North American team with someone on the buying side. And our regional offices are then more focused on sort of relationship managers, essentially, you know, salespeople, people that work with the clients, you know, talk to the clients, manage their portfolios, as well as onboarding new clients, obviously regional directors, portfolio manager. So what's really important about our structure as well is each region has a PM. So we have a portfolio manager based in Hong Kong who does the whole of the greater China AUM. So someone who speaks Chinese, who's in the same time zone, who's essentially overseeing the portfolio and the AUM and making recommendations and changes. We've got someone based in Singapore doing that as well. We've got two PMs based here in London. And then we also have a PM based in our New York office who's looking after the the whole of the Americas AUM region. So, you know, all of those guys are CFA level qualified people, but it's really important for us to have both that investment expertise in each of the regional offices, as well as having the wine expertise, which obviously comes through the relationship managers and then obviously all the administration and operational stuff space in London. And then in the tech and product team, I think we've got 24 people in tech and products. They're all based, well, a bit like anything these days, how much is someone based in a particular country? But, you know, those 24 people are mostly based in the UK and Europe. Obviously, we have, you know, engineers and developers that are based remotely. And does AUM follow a similar spread? In terms of our AUM, so yeah, UK and Europe, we um, divide up as EMEA. So EMEA is the biggest proportion of our total AUM. Then Asia is our next biggest proportion. And then the Americas region is the smaller out of the three. But of course, it's the newest. You know, we've only just opened up offices in North America and only just had staff located there in, in the last sort of six, nine months. And has the growth in your business been pretty linear since it was founded? Or have certain macro events or events specific to cult wines catalyzed your growth? I sort of think about Colt Wines' journey and my journey um, is almost sort of like five-year segments. So the first five years was, as you mentioned, I was straight out of university. I basically begged, borrowed, and still to get people to come into the office and work for me. And, you know, the first two years is proof of concept, just basically trying to make sure that you can get enough money at the end of the month to keep the lights on. So the first five years were, if you look at the numbers of those first five years versus where we are now, they're, you know, incomparable. Then the second five-year phase there was a catalyst moment in 2014. So we actually acquired one of our competitors in, in the UK called Premier Crew Fine Wine Investment. So they've been, been around for about 15, 20 years. And unfortunately, due to ill health, the owners were looking to sell the business. So we actually took over that client base and, and those portfolios in 2014. And overnight, we doubled our AUM, doubled our business. And that really was a, you know, a massive upward trajectory we went on and we opened up our Hong Kong office in 2016, Singapore in 2018. And between sort of 2014 to 2019, our turnover went from sort of 7 million to sort of 50 million. So it was a very fast paced rise over that five year period. In the UK, they have sort of business awards. So we were listed as one of the fastest growing private businesses in the UK three times uh, over a five year period, appearing in the Sunday Times Fast Track 100. So that period was super just geographical expansion, big expansion of clients and AUM and very, very fast paced. And then I think we're now in sort of one, probably like 18 months into this new five-year phase. And this new five-year phase is I'm not saying like a reborning of cult wines, but I think 
our business strategy has sort of changed. Like we were always a wine investment company. Now we're a company that does wine investments. One thing is amongst a lot of others or a lot of other things we've got planned. And the reason for that is that when this growth phase was sort of slowing down a little bit and we were just sort of stabilizing, we looked at wine investment as a category and we looked at what we were doing. We were thinking about how do we continue to scale? How do we continue to grow? How do we get more people? How do we make it more accessible? And essentially what we realized with through our own experiences is that the fine wine market is limited in how much of the investment side can grow because of inefficiencies and inefficiencies that exist within the structure of wine. So to grow the category and continue to lead the category, we actually have to address some of these issues that exist within a wine market around capacity, around accessibility, around liquidity, and around data and price transparency and price information. Now, I know it's early on in the podcast, I said that one of its advantages over other alternatives is the pricing is better. It's still nowhere near as good as it could be because the wine market's like an iceberg. Like what you can see is like a tiny bit above the sea level. And actually most of the transactions and most of the trading that's happening is happening below sea level. Like there isn't any market that's telling you all the trades that are happening by all the different participants. And so we looked at these things and said, well, actually, we need to transform wine as an asset class. And if we are able to move the needle in some way on each of these inefficiencies, then we don't need to worry about continuing to grow as a business. We don't need to worry about whether we can continue to grow wine investment as a category. Wine investment in the category will grow because more people will enter the market. If you make it safer, if you make it more secure, if you make it more liquid, if you make it more resilient, if you make pricing more accurate, if you do all of those things, then you don't need to worry about continuing to be a big wine investment company because essentially the market will grow in itself. And so this five-year theory for us is a really exciting period because we've really grown our ambitions beyond just us as a business. And we're looking at the market and we're saying, how can wine as an asset class continue to evolve? How can we continue to be part of its development? That's really interesting. And I, I think there's sub elements of that because even with like publicly traded stocks, the liquidity and transparency of a really big stock like Amazon or something or Google is Apple is very different than like a tiny micro cap or over the counter traded stock. Right. And you could see the same thing in wine potentially, right. With first growth versus you were mentioning even wine from Jura, <laughs> like what's the secondary market value of that outside of what it tastes like in, in your stomach. Right. So maybe that, can bridge us into like how you think about what wines are bought and how you select wines for the portfolio. And maybe first starting with, what do you think even is the definition of what makes a wine investable or something you'd want to buy for your clients? It's such a good question, Peter, because I actually think my answer and my viewpoint, my own personal opinion on that has changed so much over the years. I think if you'd asked me in 2009 when you know I was fresh placed out of university, I'd have said, a 95-point wine from Bordeaux from a good vintage is an investment-grade wine. And that probably was quite reflective of what the wine investment market was like in 2009. Essentially, that's what 70-80% of it was. It's a really interesting question because I think to make money from wine can happen in a number of different ways. There is the archetypal, traditional way of buying a case of wine, storing it for 10 years until it's mature, and then reselling it. And you know, 99 times out of 100, it's probably going to have gone up in value. But there are so many different ways now to make money in wine. There's the inefficiencies that exist between pricing. So because of the fact that the wine market is so fragmented and because the wines are distributed in such a elongated supply chain fashion, you know, you might be able to acquire a wine from a Swiss importer, like the official Swiss importer of a particular Burgundy wine. You can acquire in euros here 
you know, 100 cases that you know you can sell immediately in China for 125% of the price you're paying for it in, you know, out of Switzerland from the importer. Now, those type of trades aren't your traditional wine investment. They're more sort of taking advantage of inefficiencies and prices that exist in the market. And if you have the ability to source and to sell and you can use investors' money to allocate those wines and then trade them on to the you know, big Chinese importer that wants to acquire them, then is that wine investment? Because essentially you've made a 25% return on behalf of your clients in a wine that you've bought and sold, which is sort of the same as if you just left it in a warehouse for 10 years, you bought it and you sold it and one price was lower than the other and therefore you've made a profit. So in my mind, I think that it's really evolved and I think that's a big part of what we do, which is more the opportunistic trading side of the business. And I think that you can take advantage of the massive inefficiencies and fragmentation that exists within wine. Then there is the side of wine, which is trying to find the next big thing. And, you know, I think one of the advantages and one of the things that have evolved, you know, in this day and age is data and data science and data analytics. And, you know, a big part of what we do is we have a universe of wines that we have that we've established over the years that we think most wine is going to come from that established market investment grade wines. And we have a pretty solid understanding of, price, critic scores, how different critics affect different regions. And so what weighting you'd put on Antonio Galloni for Northern Italy versus what you would put on James Suckling giving 100 points to Mascarello. You'd obviously weigh one more than the other. I won't have to say what it is. And so we have that knowledge. We have that as part of our process. And so we take our universe of wines and we put them through a particular system that will evaluate them from a relative value basis. And that will give us some very good indications around if you were to buy a Northern Rhone wine right now, this is the particular vintage of this particular producer because it's hit all of these markers that we think should indicate that the wine's going to increase in value. But to a certain extent, that very analytical, mathematical way and approach to wine doesn't always uncover all of the best investment opportunities. And sometimes an investment opportunity in wine will exist outside of those parameters. You know, sometimes someone somewhere in the world will have a particular vintage of a particular cult name and a small group of people suddenly you know, feverishly start buying up all the stock in the market. And that wine goes from like, you know, $100 a bottle to $250 within a very short period of time. There are no, in my opinion, right now, there are very few ways you can actually identify that before it happens. But that happens all the time. Like a good example, Pierre Gonon. So Pierre Gonon's Saint-Joseph, like four years ago, you could buy that for, I mean, you could buy that in big volumes out of Europe for maybe 30, 40 euros a bottle. It's now trading like $150, if not more, and it's really difficult to source in any volume. And if I went back to 2016, there is no formula you could create that would have identified that Saint-Joseph-Pierre-Gonon would have suddenly gone from €30 to $150. It It just doesn't exist. But that third stream is more around the wine. It's more around the wine side, your wine knowledge, your palate, your understanding of it. And it's actually about sometimes tasting a particular wine from a particular region and going, do you know what? That's something that could really catch fire because that is looking incredibly undervalued from a pure qualitative perspective. And that qualitative perspective is really, really important for us. And so what I'm trying to describe is that free vertical approach is what we do. It's the opportunistic trading opportunities exist from the fragmentation of the market, the inefficiencies you can identify and execute on. There's the pure what looks good value if you're buying wine based on scores, vintage, current prices in the market. And then the third stream is a pure qualitative play, which is what tastes good to me from a particular region that I think has a very strong chance of increasing in value if people start liking this and start buying it. And that's really your, as I said, that's the more sort of 
I don't know, more aggressive, like throw caution to the wind and put a few bets on some up and coming producers that you think might catch fire. But so even that Pierre Ganon example, something must have still catalyzed it outside of the quality being good because people still need to know that the quality is good, right? So is it was it scores in that case or press that happened that penetrated some collector group that really bought everything up? Or in that specific example, what made it quadruple in price? But the problem with it is that even if you had ways to sort of detect something moving quite quickly, sometimes it is wines that the trains left the station. And once the trains left the station and people have seen prices have changed, everyone then follows suit and reprices their stock. And so it really the question is, can you get a view on it before the train leaves the station? I think you can set up ways that you can quickly identify. Like let's say, let's say community-led tasting scores would be a very good way to suddenly identify a new up-and-coming wine that's suddenly going to skyrocket then you'd probably have to look at ways you could integrate with Seller Tracker or integrate with Vivino to suddenly say, okay, against this peer group, are there any wines that are getting any scores or community tasting notes over a period of time, which are incrementally going in a direction with a show a pattern maybe to something that's happened before? Maybe that could give you a tell. Maybe that could give you a signal that something's ready to buy. So I think there are things like that that do exist. But I think well, the other thing you said is correct. Like sometimes it's just small little groups of collectors and you know wine enthusiasts that Maybe Pierre Gonon had never been to the US. Maybe he went over to California. Maybe did a tasting. Maybe 20 guys were all there who loved the wine and suddenly thought, let's all start buying it up and told a couple of their pals in Europe and Asia and suddenly all the stock's gone and the price has suddenly gone up and it's happened. And, you know, those ones are really, really are quite difficult to identify apart from sometimes when it's just a pure qualitative driven decision. So one of the advantages of investing in wine is that the worst case, you can drink it. And I'm curious, given your history, you know, starting in 2007, portion of the assets have actually been liquidated or doled out to your consumers, to your investors? And what kind of fees are covered in that? Or what's the logistics in terms of getting them the wine? Yeah, so it's a really good question. I think we were looking at this the other day. I think it's about 20% of all of the wines have actually gone to people like home deliveries to, to be consumed over the years, if you look at it cumulatively. In terms of the process, it's, it's pretty straightforward. I mean, we can ship to 45 states in the U.S., I think we can even ship to Massachusetts now, which we weren't able to do before. Places like Utah, for obvious reasons, you can't ship to. But essentially, a client says, hey, guys, I'm going to be in Miami next week. You know, There's a case of Lynch Barjo 5 I've got in my portfolio. Would you guys mind arranging delivery to my hotel? And then we arrange delivery to the hotel. Obviously, there are costs involved with that, and we'll tell the client how much it's going to cost. And then they pay the delivery fees if they want to have the wine delivered. So you know, our clients obviously are in 80 countries around the world. There's not every country we can deliver to, but... Some of our clients, especially the guys in Asia, almost see us as like a global wine seller. So we've got clients who are in China or who are in Hong Kong or in Tokyo, and they love investing with us and putting big sums of money in, you know, talking about millions of dollars into their portfolio. Because whilst they see it as an investment, they also see it as a global wine seller. And a great example I can give was we've got a Japanese client who's based out of Hong Kong who flew over to the US for the, the NBA finals. I think it was the Milwaukee Bucks against Phoenix Suns, that game. So anyway, he went over to there and, you know, he just looked at his portfolio and said, guys, I'm going to be in the US for like a couple of weeks. Do you mind delivering, you know, these, 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 these to my, you know, hotel when I arrived? And we essentially just arrived, arranged the, you know, logistics and had them delivered to him as and when he landed. So people quite like that. It's almost like to some of our guys, especially the big guys, they almost see it as like a globalized, decentralized digital wine seller that if they want to sell it and make a profit, they can do. And if they want to buy a new wine or trade a wine, they can do. But also, if they're going somewhere they want to drink it, they can. Wouldn't they have to pay taxes and things to get it imported into the US? Yeah. So, you know, all of that's included in the price that, you know, we will quote them. So, you know, 
we might be like, right, it's going to be five hundred dollars for all these wines, and then they pay it. But when the wine leaves the bonded warehouse in the UK, you don't pay UK taxes, so everything gets exported out of the UK or Europe without ever paying UK taxes. So if a client in Singapore or in Hong Kong or in Taiwan or in Tokyo or in China wants to deliver their wines, they pay their localized import duties and taxes that apply. They don't pay anything out of the UK or Europe. So on the flip side of that, say either I've got my 2005 Bordeaux have earned a premium that I'm happy with and I want to liquidate, and yeah. or, or my tastes have changed and I want to diversify my portfolio into something now Burgundy. Who do you sell the wines to? Or is it to other people in the fund? Is it going outside the fund? Like what's the typical liquidation event? Yeah, so I mean, liquidation event can happen in two ways. So typically, if some of client's saying, I want to draw down on my portfolio, I want to release some capital, I want to you know, take some of the profits out, you know, normally that decision will go to like, that conversation will happen with the PM. So you will look at the portfolio and say, these are the wines I'm recommending, these are the prices I'm recommending. But that will be based upon a conversation with maybe the rest of the investment committee, maybe with our trade team to understand where the market is for some of these wines, what are the prices that can be achieved in the marketplace. And Depending on what the wine is, you know, there could be some examples where, as you said, a client's got high weight of Bordeaux, they want to reduce their Bordeaux exposure, but there are Bordeaux wines in there that we really like the look of anyway for longer term investment potential. So in that scenario, they'll go through our system and our system that's set up by investment committee, which evaluates all the wines, will say that Cold Wines has a firm bid price on some of these wines. So it might be that we'll have an immediate cash out price that we're essentially going to buy the wine back off that client for. If it's a wine that we don't necessarily like the look of in terms of our own investment portfolio to be reallocated to a client and it falls outside of that, then it will go through to our trade team. So our trade team are then linked into, so we've got three members of our trade team looking after the three key markets of North America, EMEA and Asia. And so they will be working with other wine merchants, brokers, traders, importers all around the world, and they will then liquidate that wine into that market. Then there's obviously a third potential avenue, which is just for retail. So are there clients who are looking at our price lists, looking on wine search of the wines that we've got and saying, hey, I'm interested in drinking that wine. I see you've listed it and you know they take delivery of that wine. So it'll probably end up going through one of three channels. Either we'll buy the wine back from the client if there's a wine we like for investment potential. It will go for our trade wholesale team, which will essentially sell it to another B2B person, or it will go for our retail price list, which was you know be on wine search on our website. And essentially, someone just buys it because they want to drink the wine. And in terms of, you said you assess kind of their holding profile in terms of how long they desire to hold on to the wines. What is the average or what is the recommendation for someone who wants to get into wine? Like, what is the typical thing for cult wines in terms of if I'm going to invest in wine, what is the average hold time? Yeah, I think from my perspective, I would always advise someone to have a minimum sort of three to five year outlook because essentially wines increase in value because they're being consumed, they become more rare. And as that rarity increases, essentially, hopefully the price will increase. And so the longer you hold wine, the bigger the potential for that price to increase. Now, we don't expect people to hold a wine for 50, 60 years to cash out and and take profit from it. But I think that a minimum of three to five years is the length of time that anyone should be considering getting into wine. You know, in my experience, there's been people that have come in with the wrong type of approach, thinking that it's a get rich quick scheme that they can get in and out in six months or a year and make 25 to 30, 40%. It very rarely happens. And I also think that to do that, it's so much about luck and timing. Of course, there are wines that have gone up 40% in a six-month period. But for you to think you can just enter the wine market, pick a wine, and that wine's got 40% in six months, it's just never going to happen. And, and I think if your approach and your mindset is to think about wine investment like that, then you're only ever going to end up disappointed because it's just not how it works. You know, wine investment in its truest sense is investing in great wines over a medium to long term and allowing 
that period of time to make that wine more scarce, more rare, more sought after, and reselling at a higher price after you've maintained it in the perfect conditions with humidity, with temperature control, and the end consumer ends up enjoying that wine and the wine is the best it can put be. And I actually think that's a really important point. It's something that I talk a lot about with winery owners and producers, which is, you know, especially within the, the value chain of wine, the stakeholders within the wine industry should value wine investment because it's not a speculative part of wine that makes wines more expensive on purpose. I actually think it serves a really important part of the ecosystem of wine. The fact that people are willing to impart, uh, to put their money in and have that money tied up for a long period of time, and during that time, they care about where it's been stored. They care that it's in the right temperature and the humidity and condition. It means that when one of us three enjoys a 20-year-old bottle of Bordeaux or Northern Rhone or whatever it might be, we know that that bottle is going to be at its absolute peak. And we've all had experience of drinking old bottles of wine that have been left in someone's dusty old cellar in the wrong conditions and the wrong temperature. And you, you take the cork out, it crumbles everywhere, and you pour it out, and you're like, no, this wine's nowhere near what it should have been. But there probably will be a point in time, in 20 years from now, the percentage of wines that people are drinking on their dinner tables that are old, mature wines that are going to be at their peak is going to be so much greater because I think there are more people investing in wine and I think that's a good thing for the ecosystem. That's really interesting. And you talked about as over time, wines get more scarce because people drink it. Buying and selling those types of wines have traditionally been the you know purview of like the wine auction houses. And we interviewed some of them like Sotheby's and Zaki's and Winebid in episode 25 to 27. How does that business intersect with Cult Wine's investment process? Yeah, I think that we've never really intersected a lot with the auction houses, mainly neither is a place that we would source wines and neither is a place we would liquidate. And for us, the reason for that is, one, going back to some of your earlier questions, Robert, around provenance and authenticity and that absolute guarantee of the supply chain of where that wine's been. We feel that auction houses, you can't necessarily get that same level of degree of certainty. I do think by nature, wines at auction houses are often a lot more mature. They're a lot older. And so theoretically... If you're buying old vintages of wine, they've probably already gone up a lot in value. And so most occasions you'd say, well, instead of buying a 1990 Burgundy, I'm going to buy the 2010 vintage because the 1990s are 100% more expensive than the 2010. So, you know, you're not necessarily, I mean, not to say 2010s wouldn't be at auction, but do you tend to see older, rarer vintages of, of wine? And typically that doesn't necessarily fit in with the concept of investing in wines when they're younger and you get that growth curve and that price appreciation. I also think, that the costs involved in selling wines at auction are, are very prohibitive. They're quite high. They're quite expensive. And buying and selling at auction, you know, it can cost you 10 to 20% on a transaction. So if you go back to what I was saying about our approach around active management, if you're losing 10 to 20% of the value of the wine when you're actively trading a wine within someone's portfolio, then you're going to be massively eating into the profits. And so it hasn't necessarily fit into our profile of maximizing value through uh, active management. I would say that some of our investors have built collections of wines, which I think would be ideal for auction. Look, at the end of the day, as much as I like to suggest that you know we've got all the liquidity in the world, we can achieve the best prices, world record prices often for wines do occur at an auction. Like look at Domaine de la Romney Conti 1945, which achieved half a million dollars at auction. You know That wine would, was always going to be able to achieve its best price at an auction where you've got all of that publicity all of that attention, all of that access to collectors to have a look at it and go, okay, how much is someone willing to pay for a 1945 Domaine de la Romney Conti that's come from the Duran family sellers? 
Now, that's where you're going to maximize value. I think if you're building a wine investment collection in the, in the manner that I described, going to an auction to sell a 2005 vintage Lynch barge is one, going to be very, very slow. Two, it's not going to be cost effective. And three, the price you're going to get is fairly unreliable. Whereas I could tell you exactly the price you'd be able to liquidate a Lynch barge I five for today and have the money tomorrow. So, you know, it just doesn't really work on that more actively traded liquid side of investing wine for me. So what's coming up next for Cult Wines? What are the new developments that's happening? Yeah, so I mean, it's a really exciting time for us as a business. We're launching our new platform for our managed investment service next week. So the new platform is really going to deliver our sort of DNA of who we are as a business in a, in a much more scalable and accessible way. So we're really excited about launching that into the market. As I said to you, I think that as a business, we have changed tack a little bit in terms of the way that we're approaching things. And we're working on a number of exciting projects at the moment that are going to be tackling things around data. You know, we're working with a couple of partners on the data side of the business. And, you know, there's some products and platforms that we're hoping to be involved with or bring to market in the near future. The other side of the business that I'm really excited about, and I think it's a really important development for the wine market is around blockchain and what that can do in terms of security, authenticity, but also speed of settlement for clients. So we've been working on our own bespoke public blockchain project that's going to be uh, rolled out across all of our AUM. So within the next, probably before the end of the year, we'll probably have you know, that ready to launch and have that available to our, our clients, which essentially will put around $300 million worth of wine on the, on the public blockchain. So we're really excited about that and how that can evolve the market. And yeah, we're just, um, you know, excited to work with some brilliant producers, winemakers, you know, bring them to new markets, new territories. Obviously, we've just opened our offices in the Americas this year in both Toronto and New York. So potentially looking to expand our, our footprint and our, ta- our activities in North America as a going to be an exciting thing for us as well. So yeah, there's a lot going on. But I mean, broadly speaking, in my what 12, 12 plus years being full time working in the wine industry, especially around wine as an asset, especially investment grade wine, I don't think I've ever seen a time as exciting as this from a dynamism perspective. I think we're at a real inflection point for the wine market in terms of technology and adoption of that technology. And I do think that there are going to be some major shifts and changes in the way that consumers engage with wine, not just as a consumable product, but as an asset, the way that they research it, they collect it, they store it, they secure it, they trade it, they track it. You know, we've already started to see these platforms and technologies come out, but I think that the adoption of them is only going to increase. And I think that we're probably going to see the biggest transformation in the wine industry in the next few years that arguably has happened, but you might argue in the 80s when wine really took off in North America had quite a transformational effect. But I think it could potentially be at that sort of level. So it's just such an exciting time to be involved with wine, especially at the end of wine that we're dealing with. And it's just so fun to be involved in these type of projects. And yeah, I'm just excited to sort of continue on that path with cult wines. Tom, we learned a lot about the wine investment process and from one of the early players in the space. And, and it's great to hear about that. You're keeping on the family legacy of investing in wine and uh, that your father instilled in you and your brother. So it sounds like well onto the way. We're looking forward to checking out uh, the development as it happens in North America as well. But we want to thank you for joining the podcast. We learned a lot and uh, it was great information. Great. No, I'm really uh, glad to be here. Thanks very much for inviting me on. And yeah, hopefully we can catch up again sometime in the future when there's more things to talk about. Yeah, we got to get that San Francisco office open. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely on the agenda now. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers.